Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. Good morning. It's good to be here today. I haven't preached for two weeks, so I'm ready. Excited, excited to be with you today. Uh, we're starting a new series today, and it's uh, really a study in Ephesians. We're going to go through the book of Ephesians. I, I don't know how long it's going to take. I, I kind of had my mindset that it was going to be six weeks, but as I got into this book, I'm like, there's too much good stuff to skip over, so we might stay in it a little longer, and that would take us past Easter. But um, uh, I, I'm just excited about this book. There, there's so much rich uh, doctrine in this book. And um, not that I'm going to preach to you doctrine this morning, but I, I, I really want us to jump into this book, and I want to encourage you over the next few weeks to read Ephesians. It's only six chapters, but read it over and over, and uh, just, just fill your heart and your mind with this book. Um, just to kind of kick off this series, I, I wanted to uh, show you uh, 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 a little clip here. <laughs> I, how many like the peanuts? How many don't know what the peanuts are? Okay. All right. But here we go. Switch channels, says Lucy to Linus. I said switch channels. I want to watch my program. Are you kidding? What makes you think you can just walk right in here and take over? These five fingers. Individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. <laughs> Which channel do you want? <laughs> Why can't you guys get organized like that? I think that really demonstrates a little bit unity. And I, what would happen if the church as a whole became unified? What would happen if local churches could be unified within themselves? What would happen if families were unified within their homes? What if individuals were truly unified to Christ? And so, you know, this morning we begin a new series that will take us through the book of Ephesians, and I want to look at this incredible letter from Paul to the believers at the church in Ephesus through the lens of the topic of unity. So we're going through Ephesians, but we're going to look through the lens of unity. And there is so much to unpack, as I said. It could take a year or more. We won't take that long. But I really want you to see how this idea of unity is woven throughout the book. So let's jump in this morning and, and let it speak to us for the, the next several weeks. So, so what is unity anyway? Let's start there. Unity is when oneness, everybody say oneness. Say it again. Oneness. When oneness is achieved between differing parties by means of agreement. And I want you to know something. Everybody in this room is different. I am so glad that I am different from Eric. He is so glad that he is different from me. I'm glad there is only one. Who should I pick on? We always pick on Denny, so Denny. I'm so glad there's only one of Corey. Stacy says, you'd like more Corys? Aren't you a one-man one woman? <laughs> We're all different. 
God's the God of infinite variety, and when he made us, he made us completely different, and I'm so thankful for that. Um, look at your neighbor and just say you're different, <laughs> whatever that might mean. But unity is oneness achieved between differing parties by means of agreement. So when differing individuals, different people, come into agreement, unity can be the result, and oftentimes is the result. The two parties can act and function as one because they agree. Even the Hebrew and Greek words that have been translated into the word unity in our modern versions of the Bible, they carry with them this idea of oneness. And it's all throughout the Bible. Psalm 133.1 says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity, or that word means oneness. How good and pleasant it is to God, to the Father, when his people live together in oneness or in unity. Acts 2.44, that idea is there. All that believed were, were together and had all things in common. They were one. They had all things in common. Uh, John 10.30, I, and this is Jesus speaking, I and my Father are one. Mark 3.24, if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. That, that, that shows what happens when there is no oneness. This idea of oneness is woven throughout Scripture and especially in the book of Ephesians. And even in his last prayer before he was arrested, Jesus cried out to God that all believers would be unified. John 17, 20 through 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, one Father, just as you and I I'm sorry, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. This is the last prayer of Jesus before he was arrested. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It has been said that this is, again, the only unanswered prayer of Christ. It will be answered, make no mistake, but the body of Christ has a long way to go before they can claim that they are unified, that they are one, even as God the Father and God the Son are one. The difficult thing about this is, when we are, is, is the fact that we're all human, right? We all have our opinions about the little nuances of what's right and what's wrong in any given situation, we all have different experiences, and those same experiences create unique lenses that we view things through. We have different personalities, and we differ in how we process emotions, and all of these work against us in this effort to be one. Case in point, I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's a revival of prayer and worship that's taking place at Asbury University. It's pretty incredible. Worship and prayer have erupted. They're They've been going 24-7 since February 8th, I think it was. It's spread into other universities, and basically there has been a move of God as college students, faculty, and thousands of others who have traveled there continue to lift up and exalt the name of Jesus. And it's a good thing. That's a good thing, right? When Jesus' name is exalted, it's a good thing. The name of Jesus is being worshipped, good things are happening, salvations are taking place, public confessions of sin. I mean, that doesn't happen without God. Let, 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 
Should we walk around and have some public confessions of your own sin? That's a move of the Spirit, people. That's a move of the Spirit when things like that happen. Life change is happening, and yet there's still those within the big C church that have to give their negative opinion about what's going on via social media. Well, that's not real revival. Well, they can't call that revival. I've seen all sorts of things online that either are for it or against it. You know what? If you're not there and you're not a part of it, shut your mouth. It's a good thing. God's moving. God is moving. You know, I think uh, Christians are the only army that shoot their own wounded and discredit their own victories. When the apostles told Jesus that they had come across some people who were casting out demons in his name, they were so proud to tell him that we made them stop. And Jesus said to them, why would you do that? And he says this, and we forget about this verse sometimes. He says, if they're not against us, they're for us. That's what he says. We don't need any more critics in the house of God. We need more encouragers. The Bible also says in James 3.16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, and yeah, that's what I think goes on in people that are just negative and critical all the time. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder, unrest and rebellion, and every evil thing and morally degrading practice. And if our differences you know, weren't enough to overcome in the church, throw in the fact that the cultural and moral climate we all find ourselves living in demands that, we, that, that all beliefs and all the ideas of what truth is be accepted as equal. There's pressure from the outside of the church. You know, the world says everybody's beliefs are equal. Well, if everybody's e- beliefs are equal, then, then, then there is no truth. Truth is relative to the individual, and if truth is relative to the individual, then the individual decides what truth is, right? And then their God of their own truth. And if everybody's their own God of their own truth, I'm just, I'm just talking here. Maybe I'm babbling. Are you following me? If, if there is no, if, there, if everyone's the God of their own truth, then there is no God of the truth in people's minds. But there is a God of absolute truth. Justice and equality are terms that have been hijacked right out of the word of God. And their meanings have been so distorted and turned upside down that immoral people point their accusing finger at the church and call us bigots, hypocrites, and deplorables. It's hard as a church to be unified. It's hard as the church, the big C church, to be unified. It's hard to be unified even in our own homes. It's difficult. Not to mention those things. Then then you have this deceiving tactical maneuver by Satan, the father of lies and the author of death itself, always, he always brings this maneuver of, of, of bringing spirit, uh, a spirit of confusion into those situations where the church just begins to strive for unity. You see revival break out, and what happens? Instantly, Christian people start saying, oh, I don't know if that's a... And then all of a sudden, there's confusion. Well, maybe, maybe there's no such thing as that. We start believing things like being unified can't happen unless we compromise the truth. The devil's good at spewing things in our ear. I can't fellowship with believers that refuse to believe exactly like I believe. They're wrong on that, and I'm right, so we just need to go our separate ways. Oneness gets thrown out the window for the sake of individuals being right. 
There is absolute right and wrong. There's no question. But oftentimes when believers get stubborn about their positions or opinions, it's not as much about standing up for truth as it is about making sure that everyone in the room knows they're right. And at the heart of that is pride. Not a love of truth or a love for one another. And yes, we all have the right to our own opinions. I'm not saying that. But, but, when, we, but, but when being right about minor things becomes more important than keeping the unity we never move forward in those areas of life where unity is essential. So, so let's, again, jump into the book of Ephesians here and begin where the Apostle Paul began in his letter. And, and this week, that was kind of an intro I just gave you, this week, we're just going to get not very far into the book, but we're going to talk about the beginning of unity. Where does unity start? Where does it begin? And I want you to understand that all unity begins with our union in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1 starts like many other of Pauline letters to the churches, states who it's from, who it's to, and includes some greetings, and then he jumps right into it in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does it mean to be in Christ? Christ. As faithful believers, our life is only found in Christ Jesus. I want to say that again because it's, it's so true. As faithful believers, our life is only found in Christ Jesus. And you will see this phrase over and over throughout Paul, the Paul's letters, in Christ, in him, in the Lord, these phrases occur over 160 times in his letters, 36 times in the book of Ephesians. Life can't be drawn from any other well. I, I want you to understand this. You can't get life out of any other well except the well of Jesus Christ. Your earthly relationships won't do it for you. I mean, I know we just had Valentine's Day and we have all these people who are sweethearts and all that. It's wonderful. But, but your earthly relationship, no matter how good it is, you can't really draw life, real life from that. Your life has got to be drawn from the well of Jesus Christ. How I many know people will fail you? People will hurt you. Especially those that you love. Sometimes. Because we're all so imperfect. You can't get life from your earthly relationships. You can't get life from anything this world has to offer. It can only be drawn from the river of his living waters. Being in Christ is to be in a relationship with him, to be in union with him. It's a covenant relationship based on his shed blood. He was nailed to a cross. He, he, he spilt his blood and became the ultimate sacrifice for the sin of humanity. All who receive this gift enter into a union with him and are in him. He paid the price we owe. He ransomed us from eternal death. And those of us who are born again have received this gift that is offered to everyone. This is what it means to be in Christ. In Christ Jesus. This union with Christ starts the moment we enter into a relationship with him. And as we continue to become unified with him, as we grow in that relationship, it's not merely about praying a prayer of salvation or just attending a church. It's about fellowshipping and communion or communing with him on a daily basis. 
The more time you spend with him, the more you become like him, and the stronger that union you have with him becomes. And let me say it again, all unity begins with our union in Christ Jesus. Unity in all your other relationships can't be achieved. It cannot be achieved until you have a union in and with Christ Jesus. And I love what the Fire Bible study notes say in reference to this. It says this, union with Christ means that the believer now lives and acts in the sphere of Christ Jesus. They live there in that sphere of, of, of God's presence, of who he is. Union with Christ is the redeemed Christian's new environment. That's, again, where they live. In Christ, believers have con- conscious communion with their Lord, and in this relationship, their lives, their very lives are seen as the life of Christ living in them. The life of Christ living in them. So when you become saved, when you ask Jesus into your heart, and it's a real decision that you make, and, and you, you begin that relationship and you start out, you are in him, and he is in you. You live there. Everything changes from that moment. Everything. How many have experienced a little bit of that change since you've received Jesus Christ? You know, every good accountant or bookkeeper knows how important bank reconciliation is. You reconcile your own records, right, of your financial accounts with what the bank says you have. And in doing this, you find errors and where mistakes have been made. You essentially bring your records and the bank's records into agreement. They are unified because the numbers agree. When you enter into a union with Christ, your life will, be, will come into agreement with who he is. Your life will reflect who he is. I, maybe I'll just pause there for a second. Was there any time this last week where your life did not reflect who he is? He's perfect, right? So as your mistakes and your shortcomings are revealed, as you draw close to him in relationship, a desire to change begins to occur. You desire to be reconciled to him. You begin to desire for agreement between his perfection and your imperfection. And hear me, church, because this is where so many people miss it. The distance between his perfection and our imperfection is so far apart that we can never truly become reconciled with him, no matter how hard we try. In other words, it can't happen with self-effort. You, you start to see his perfection, you, you, you know your imperfection, and you're like, well, I'm going to try harder. I'm going I'm to really put the effort forth, and I'm going I'm to start to, to, to narrow that gap between his perfection and my imperfection. I'm going to try to be good. Try to live right. But I'm telling you, it's too far apart. His perfection is so perfect, and your imperfection is so imperfect. Is that true? Is anybody pretty close to perfection in here? I mean, maybe Jared. It's too far apart. This is why the blood of Jesus is so important. His innocent blood shed for our sins brings our imperfections into agreement with God's perfection. We are reconciled to his perfection because his blood paid our debt. And let me give you an equation for you math people. His perfection minus our imperfection equals our sin debt. 
It's what we owe. It's what we would have to pay. But this is the, the beautiful thing. His perfection minus our imperfection plus Jesus' blood applied to our lives equals our sin debt paid in full. And that takes us right into what Paul says in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. When you truly understand what he did for you, it's amazing how easy it is to fall in love with him. And it's a real love, an intimate love, a love that wants to please him, not by somehow earning your way by being good enough, but, but to simply worship him for who he is and what he has accomplished for us. A love like that results in holy living, not legalistic rule following, but a holiness that's based on his word, his character, and his very nature. And, and, and that changes the way we live, and it changes us from the inside out, not the outside in. Are you hearing me this morning? I'm talking about becoming unified with Christ, your life coming into agreement with who he is, his very nature, the very nature of who he is. That's what it means to be in Christ. Legalism always tries to change from the outside in. A love relationship with Christ will always seek to change you from the inside out. And God sees us, I, you, gotta, you gotta understand this, God sees us as blameless the moment we receive him. How is that possible? Because his grace is so magnificent. Because his blood is so powerful. I don't care what you've done, the moment you truly accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior, the old is gone and the new will come. You are instantly blameless before him. Again, not because of what you've done, obviously, right? You haven't done anything. You've accepted his gift. You received his gift of salvation, what he offers all men. You've received that, and when you do, boom, you're blameless. He sees you as righteous. There's so much beating ourselves up in our own hearts and our own minds. There's so much condemnation that the devil whispers in our ear and, and we, we listen to it, and then we, we hear it so much that we start repeating it ourselves, and we condemn ourselves. Yes, I'm a lowly sinner, but I am saved by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Not by anything I've done that I could boast. I can't boast about nothing. See, it's, it's so interesting to me that Christianity, real Christianity, Real Christianity is all about what God has done for us. Every other religion in the world, every other one, is all about what we do for God. It makes Christianity so unique. And it, it, it recognizes the fact that we can't be perfect. God sees us as blameless the moment we receive him. Then as our understanding of what he has done for us increases, our love relationship with him deepens, resulting in a noticeable outward change in our actions and in the way we live our lives. Again, from the inside out, Paul says that we should be holy and blameless before him in verse four. We should be holy and blameless before him, which is essentially the outward reality of our inward change, our inner change. 
If you are truly in him, spending time with him won't be a chore. Time in prayer, time in his word, time just worshiping him in his presence. I believe the Bible has a lot to say about those that are in him. Things we like to hear and things we don't like to hear. I like what Romans 8.1 says, Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to have any condemnation. That's great. We love that, right? We're in him, so we don't have any condemnation. But then you read things like uh, Hebrews uh, 12.6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. I just love being chastised and disciplined, don't you? We don't get to pick and choose what, what Scripture's for us. I mean, it's all for us, right? We take it all. And there's only one person on this earth who knows if you are really in Christ or not, and that's you. It's up to you to do the inventory of your life and ask the hard question. Have I really given my heart to him? Have I simply just prayed a prayer yet never submitted to him? Because I'm telling you, being born again is more than just saying a prayer. It's submission. That's a starting point. I'm not dissing prayers. I think that's wonderful that you ask Christ in. But there's a submission that must take place. The, the, the hard question of have I ever, or have I stagnated, stagnated in my growth to the point that I no longer have an active relationship with him? I mean, I love the fact that confess your sins and he is faithful and just to, confess, to, to forgive you of your sins. That's truth. And you, you're, you, no matter how far away you run from God, he, he's only one step back because he's chasing you. He loves you that much. Salvation is free and you are in him the moment you receive. You are born again in an instant. You are holy and blameless because of the of, of Jesus' blood alone, but, but has your inner change produced a change in your outward reality? Are you living for him? Are you in him? Are you remaining in him? And I, I'm talking about what it means to be in him this morning because that's where unity in all of our other relationships begin. If you are not unified with Christ, if your life hasn't come into agreement and into oneness with him, then all other unity is, is, is really impossible. Unity in your family, unity with brothers and sisters in Christ, unity across uh, you know, de denominational barriers where, where, where minor truths are the difference between this church and that church. You, you won't find unity anywhere if you're not first unified with him. It starts with him and being in him. And let's be clear this morning, there's no unity, again, with anyone else if you're not first unified with him. I think about unity between husbands and wives, and we'll get to that in this series. I think about unity between children and parents. We'll get to that in this series. But unless there's unity between you and Jesus Christ, it's just not, not going to happen in the other relationships. It's where all unity begins. You are reconciled to him through his shed blood, and you enter into a union with him, a relationship that's real and personal and that's based on love. As time goes on and you spend time with him and he, he changes you from the inside out and you begin to look like him as, as you remain in him. And, and this morning, I, I'm, I'm pretty much done preaching. 
I want to read to you, though, John 15, 1 through 8. And I want you to not follow along on the screen. I mean, you don't have to, but I want you to close your eyes and bow your head. And I want to read the scripture to you in reference to being in him, what we just talked about. I want you to let the scripture just sink in deep this morning. It says, I am the true vine. This is Jesus speaking. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I don't know about you, but when I read that and I think about my own life, and if, if, am I plugged into the vine for real? Has my pride gotten the way where as long as people think I'm plugged into the vine, that's okay, that's good enough? I read this scripture, and, and it, it, it just, you, you, you see things like, that branch is cut off and thrown into the fire and burned. I don't know how you uh, interpret that. I, I interpret that pretty harshly for me, I think. I also know that God prunes branches he loves, chastise, disciplines, prunes, so that more fruit can happen. But that happens when we remain in him constantly. See, some people believe that once you get saved, it's, it's all good, you're fine, you can do whatever you want because, you know, it, you're, you're saved and, and, and no one can pluck you out of the Father's hand. But the word of God says, um, uh, and that's what it does say, that no one can pluck you out of the Father's hand, but, but you can jump out of his hand or you can wander off of his hand or you can wander out of grace and become so uh, uh, just, just calloused because of what we watch and what we're around and where we live and what we listen to and all, what we see, we, what we allow ourselves to see, that our relationship with Jesus becomes not as vibrant and strong as it should be or as it once was. Remaining in him is the beginning of unity in all of your relationships. And we're gonna get into those relationships, no doubt, but it all starts with him. It's amazing. I, I could have a big, big fight. I was going to say with Kenny, but I, I know I could never have a fight with Kenny. I could have a big, big fight with Tony, right? Tony, come up here. I haven't had a big fight with Tony, by the way. I could have a big fight with Tony as a brother in Christ, right? We could butt heads. We could be mad. But, but here's the thing. If I'm in Christ and he's in Christ, I know 
what I've been saved from. I remember as I stay in Christ who I am without Christ, right? <laughs> who I was without Christ. I remember those things and, they all, and then I think, I've been forgiven so much. When you remain in that relationship, when you're in him, you start thinking about all the things he's done for you. We're gonna get into that next week. All the benefits of being in union with Christ. All of the benefits, there's so many. And Ephesians just hits several of them. But, but if I remember all that he's done for me, forgiveness-wise, what he saved me from, who I'm no longer, you know what I mean? How many have changed? You don't wanna know me 25 years ago. Well, maybe I was okay 25. It's been longer than that, hasn't it? You don't wanna know me 40 years ago. 35 years ago for sure. God's changed me from the inside out. And so you start remembering that, and then I'm like, how can I do this to my brother? Jesus has done this for me. How can I do this to my brother? And all of a sudden, you, you see where unity with him is number one? When, that, when you have unity with him, then all the other relationships are fine. Do you think it's easy to forgive? Now you can go sit down because I'm going to talk about marriage, and I don't want anybody to think anything. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you realize? I better get back up here where I'm supposed to be. Um, do you realize that, that in a marriage relationship, there's nobody who's perfect? I mean, right, right? Like, you're not perfect, Brad. Tiffany, you're, you're not perfect. But when you understand and you remember who you are in Christ and you remain in him and you're in Christ, when that, when that unity is right, when you're one with him, I'm telling you, you'll have more grace for her and her mistakes and you'll have lots more grace for him and his mistakes uh, than you ever would if you don't start with that first first love of being in him, being unified with him. I, I think it's been said that if, you're, if your horizontal relationships are not right in life, then the first thing you should do is check your vertical relationship with Jesus. That's exactly what this is talking about. Being in him, remaining in him. And what does that mean? It means you just let him in to every room, every part of your life. You allow your life to come into agreement with who he is, his very character and his very nature. Get off the road! Come on, get on! I mean, I always use that example, you know, because people drive angry half the time. Do we act like Jesus? Are we in him? Do we live in his, that atmosphere, that environment of being in him? Lord God, I thank you that you did what you did to save us. God, we didn't deserve it. We can't earn it. But we can receive it. And Lord, this gift of salvation is so great. It's so awesome. It's so amazing. It's, it's almost hard to comprehend. You did what no other could do. You died for us. And I think Devin said this morning, you would, you would have died if it, we were, if it was just, uh, just me. No matter what individual you're talking about, you would have come and died for that one individual. God, we're overwhelmed 
with the love that you've had for us. God, help us never grow weary in doing good. Let us never, God, wander out of being in relationship with you. Being in you. And I ask the question, if you're here this morning and you've never asked Jesus into your heart, and you want to, you want to receive this gift that he offers to everybody, would you raise your hand and say, yeah, it's me. I, I want that gift. I need to accept Jesus into my heart. I need to get her done once and for all. Is there anybody here this morning that's never done that? Okay. Is there anyone here this morning that Say, yeah, I've been wandering a little too close to the edge here. The ice of my relationship with Jesus has gotten a little thin. I don't want to fall through. I want to be in him. I want to be in vital relationship with him. That's just right on track. And I need to rededicate my life to him. Is there anybody like that this morning? Would you just raise your hand? All heads bowed and eyes closed. Is there anybody like that? Hands. Hands. See those hands? Let's pray. God, we ask you into our lives today. We want to be in real relationship with you. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ, but God, we, we want to walk daily in you. It doesn't mean we're never going to mess up. We know your blood's faithful uh, to, to forgive us. You're faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins when we ask for forgiveness. We repent. But God, we, we don't want to have those moments. So we invite you into our lives once again to do surgery in our hearts, to pull out the things that need to be pulled out, to, 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 to minister to those areas that are wounded, that need healing, that cause us to sometimes get weird thoughts and cause us to do weird things. God, we invite you back in to change us from the inside out. And Lord, when you whisper in our ear, don't do that. Don't act like that. Remember me. Remember what I did for you. Lord, help us take that way out, that, that, that hand of rescue that you give us whenever temptation comes our way. We give you our hearts and lives today. And we thank you for who you are and what you've done. Unify us to you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.